Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning, and it is a great morning to talk about truth and the things of God and also how we can promote truth in our culture. And one of the top trending headlines this morning is uh, out of the state of Texas, nearly 80% of Texas's floating border barrier is technically in Mexico, a survey finds. And this revelation was made public in a federal court filing by the Biden administration in its lawsuit against the barrier, which Texas set up in July as part of an initiative directed by Governor Greg Abbott to repel migrants and repudiate President Biden's border policies. Uh, This coming from CBS News. So, uh, repelling migrants is an interesting way to say that. I think maybe border security and uh, making sure to protect America's interests would be a better way of framing it. But of course, uh, that is mainstream media. So joining me now to discuss this and more is my good friend Don Huffines, who is the president of the Huffines Liberty Foundation, a former state senator and also a former gubernatorial candidate from the state of Texas. So good morning, Don. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Great to be on your show. Thanks so much. Always appreciate having you. So, um, you know, so these controversies over these uh, floating buoys um, have have been, you know, kind of in and out of the news um, recently. But uh, what is your take overall on this strategy from the governor to uh, have this kind of barrier located in Texas? Well, actually, this is a good idea for, uh, that that Abbott had or his team had. And let me just give everybody a description. The buoys are actually quite large, and they have a barrier that, that hangs below them all the way down to the bottom of the river, so it's hard to swim uh, uh, over them or under them. But they're only 1,000 feet. I mean, we have 1,200, over 1,200 miles of a border with Mexico, and and he and he put these for a thousand feet. The fact that the federal government is upset about it is making everybody happy in Texas. And uh, but it's it's way overdue, way overdue. This is really the first litigation the Fed, Fed federal government has had against Abbott or any of his actions down there on the border because he hasn't done much. And Texas is spending billions of dollars a year for extra border security, and we just don't have a lot to show for it. Well, and, and yeah, and so this um, is it's actually a good thing that now you know the Biden administration is having to challenge some kind of action from Governor Governor Abbott to protect the border. I think we've all been waiting for that for quite a few years. Um, so, of course, the uh, the Mexican government has um, voiced its objections to the buoys and also uh, Democrat lawmakers and activists have expressed concerns about these buoys um, that are because they're in the shallower water where um, the the migrants would tend to uh, to pass. It's now diverting them or directing them around that to deeper parts of the water where they say they're more likely uh, to drown. And so this is this comes as a potential um, objection on you know on humanitarian grounds or that this is um, you know contrary to uh, what the United States should be doing. And so what's the conservative response to that? 
Well, first, let's just look at why the Biden administration, the leftists, the Democrats are keeping the border open. This is a premeditated attack on Texas. This is a government policy to turn the United States and Texas blue. Uh, that all most of these illegals are coming from Central and South America, although they're also from 150 different countries around the world. But there's not a conservative government ever in power in Central or South America or in Mexico. Those countries are run by socialists. The Democrats know that Texas is the last red border state left. They got they got California. They got Arizona. They always had New Mexico. We're at, we're the last man standing. And I'm telling you, they're flooding Texas with millions, millions of illegals. And they don't have to worry about winning an election. They're very patient. Texas will go blue. I mean, we're going to go red this next cycle. But I'm telling you, there's no way we can withstand this influx. These folks will get amnesty. They will be able to vote. And we are just flooded with millions. Right now, we're thinking five to 6,000 are being captured daily at the Texas border alone. Since Biden has been president, 8.4 million people. Apprehension. They weren't apprehended because they let them go in the United States, have been released into the U.S., and you could double that for the getaways. So the illegal immigration population in the United States has doubled and, since Biden's been elected. But it was, the border was never secure with Trump either. It was more secure, but it wasn't completely secure. I mean, this is a, the leftist strategy to take over the United States of America. It's kind of like part of the Great Reset. We're running out of time. This is a very dangerous situation for liberty and freedom in, the, in Texas and in the United States, because when Texas goes blue, and it will at the current rate, there's no question, but you're going to not just lose the United States, you're going to lose the free world, because there's no way a president can be elected uh, without winning Texas, a, a Republican president. I'm speaking with Don Huffines, who's the president of the Huffines Liberty Foundation. You can find more about that at HuffinesLiberty.com. And uh, the Justice Department's nine-page lawsuit, um, which was filed in district court in in, uh, Austin, said that Texas officials were required to request and obtain permission from the federal government before assembling these buoys. Um, I think that's ridiculous, and the Constitution specifically says otherwise um, in terms of a of when um, a governor is allowed to protect his state against invasion. Uh, but what what are your thoughts on that particular line of argument from the Justice Department? Well, I'm not surprised by it. Uh, of course, they're going to push back any way they can, but it, you're correct. It, it, it is not accurate. Uh, we have a great white paper the Huffines Liberty Foundation has done on, on border security. It's called Operation Clean Sweep, and it gives some detail about the history of Article 1, uh, Section 10, which it, which gives the states the authority uh, to do what they need to do to repel an invasion. And and it's it's fundamental to the Constitution. And if the federal government's causing an invasion or not coming to the state's aid, the states have the authority to uh, engage a military, charge a tariff, negotiate a treaty, do all kinds of things uh, to defend themselves. It's the fundamental responsibility in the state and our Texas Constitution that the governor's commanding in chief, and, and he doesn't just have the authority to protect us from an invasion. He's got uh, he's got the, uh, an obligation. He's got the requirement in the Constitution to defend the state from an invasion. And when we're getting invaded by 5,000, 6,000 people a day, that's an invasion. 
And Abbott has not fulfilled that obligation it, without question. We need economic pressure on Mexico. The only way Mexico is going to respond is with economic pressure. Look, Mexico is our enemy, our enemy. They're doing more to undermine the United States over the last 40 years than any foreign nation on earth. They're importing not only drugs by the truckloads, but sex trafficking. The cartels run the states, uh, uh, the northern states of Mexico and the federal government of Mexico. Mexico, this is an intentional government campaign to undermine the United States of America. Mexican government got involved in the political system of, of California. They energized all the illegals and the Hispanics in Mexico to throw the Repub- I mean, in California to throw the Republicans out of office several years ago. And they're going to do, they did the same in Arizona. They're going to do the same in Texas. They are interfering in our country. They are undermining our democracy and our liberty. And we're going to wake up one day and we're going to live in tyranny because of this. And this is rapidly approaching. And, and I think it's um, under those terms that you've just articulated, uh, Don Huffines, it's, it makes sense um, to call this an invasion and um, call uh, Mexico our enemy under those uh, definitions. And it's fascinating to me to see how the federal government um, is responding to this instead of uh, wanting a secure border and instead of recognizing the government on both the state and federal level and that obligation and that duty to protect our border and protect American interests first, um, th- a declaration of invasion could uh, could ultimately mean that Governor Abbott could take more um, extreme and and overt measures to protect the border. Th- this is as- actually passive to put these buoys. This is a deterrent, and that's still being challenged as somehow uh, not humanitarian. I mean, it's 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 to me fascinating that even a deterrent. It just signals how much the federal government wants an open border and does not care about um, securing the border and is going to fight uh, their own uh, state level governor in America instead of responding with support and an affirmation of the constitutional obligations for national security. I mean, this just is, is so obvious. Um, that it signals and shows the Biden administration's complete uh, dereliction of duty. And and speaking of that, I also want to get your uh, your response as well on the four articles of impeachment that um, don't deal with the border, which I think that could be actually a basis for impeachment of Joe Biden. But um, Representative um, Stubbe from Florida laid out four articles of impeachment Um, A few days ago, abuse of power, obstruction of justice, fraud and financial involvement in drugs and prostitution. Uh, This relates to the uh, financial business dealings of uh, Hunter Biden and alleging uh, the selling of access to Joe Biden while he served as vice president during the Obama administration. Um, Don Huffines, I know there's been a lot of um, talk between the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, and um, some of the uh, Republican leadership there. And um, this, in my view, while it it may be a good argument, uh, kind of went rogue a little bit um, in terms of not probably not having um, the the votes before the impeachment article. So is this a little bit of the cart before the horse or uh, what do you make of of this particular move? Well, I I think uh, it's a little premature. I do. Uh, I'd like to see it, of course. I, you know, Biden's a crook. He really is. And and it, it, there's no question about it that he's for sale. And and he took 
millions of dollars, he and his family, uh, to implement uh, to uh, government policy or whatever with his brand. And Hunter Biden's a, a loser, also a, a real crook. So, but look, Jenna, as we know, we've got a five-vote majority, the Republicans do, in, in, in the House. And that is just razor, razor thin. And and you, you've got a lot of Republicans that really aren't Republicans. And so if you could get that through and if you could get the committees to, I mean, the, the body to to impeach, then you got to go over to the Senate. And that's just not going to happen. Unfortunately, the, the impeachment process, uh, process has been weaponized and it's very political and it shouldn't be uh the republicans did start that with clinton you know so uh but right now these are high crimes against the uh against the united states and 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 he's been breaking the law for years and he should be held accountable so any of that anything that brings light to that is 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 great unfortunately uh the the media is controlled by the leftists the socialists control our media, our mainline media. So you could have all these hearings and you could have this process, impeachment process, but I'm not sure many Americans are ever going to hear about it. Yeah. And and isn't it fascinating how much, I mean, the, the national attention was dominated and focused for months on uh, the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And uh, everybody, you know, was just waiting until Nancy Pelosi made that dramatic, you know, move from the House to the Senate to file the articles of impeachment. And everybody, you know, was so focused on the drama. And and yet it's almost like, the, you know, the, the mainstream media is treating this, oh, another day, another Joe Biden impeachment. This is frivolous. This doesn't matter. And so it shapes the national perception because the mainstream media is not treating this like it's something that's meritorious. And that is absolutely on purpose. And I think another thing... Um, just in the last 30 seconds I have with you, Don Huffines, um, I think another thing they're intentionally ignoring is the impeachment trial of Attorney General Ken Paxton in Texas as well. Uh, that's true. Uh, you know, it's it's horrible day when we weaponize our impeachment process. But, you know, we government officials have a higher standard than regular uh, Americans. They've got to live up to it. Uh, government corruption is real and we've got to stop it. But uh, yeah, we've well got a said. lot of papers on that, HuffinesLibertyFoundation.com. Uh, I encourage everybody to get out there and read them. Absolutely. You do great work there. So Don Huffines of the Huffines Liberty Foundation, that's HuffinesLiberty.com. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you didn't think that the diversity uh, and inclusion and all of the the gender theory drama in uh, K through 12 wasn't enough, now states like New Jersey, California, Connecticut, New York, and others are working to mandate climate change curriculum in every subject, K through 12 education, including physical education, art, and foreign languages. And so my next guest, uh, who is a professor at Suffolk Community College, uh, Nicholas Giordano, joins me in his op-ed just went live moments ago in Fox News. And the headline here is America's schools are becoming training grounds for climate change activists. So good morning, Nick, and uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for having me. 
Hi, thanks so much. Uh, glad you could join. All right, so uh, so this is absolutely ridiculous that uh, some states are actually looking at codifying in statute a requirement for climate change uh, curriculum in K through 12. What is going on? Well, they're trying to create a bunch of Greta Thunbergs for the next generation, and it's clear that. They're looking to infiltrate every single subject area, including, as you said, foreign languages and physical education. If you look at the standards, it's terrifying. So in gym, they label climate change eight times. They don't label obesity or the obesity epidemic at all and just healthy eating habits twice. In the new standards for social studies, they want to develop students so that students can basically become political activists advocating for climate change for the purpose of planning and proposing advocacy projects and inform others about the impact of climate change. And this is indoctrination. It's not about education. There's only a limited amount of time in the day for the subject material. And so what are we taking out in order to add this new climate change curricula? Now, people don't know, but the proficiency levels are abysmal here in the United States. Only 13% of students are proficient in American history. 22% are proficient in American civics. Most students cannot pass a basic citizenship test, and yet they're being indoctrinated with the belief that the only solution to the problem is through government, that you give the government more power to tackle climate change. Education has lost its way. It's not about education anymore, and, and that's the unfortunate part. And every parent and needs to be aware of what's happening in their children's school. Absolutely. And and you're so right that um, this isn't about education anymore. It's about indoctrination. I mean, this reminds me of some of the you know, documentaries that, that I've watched about uh, what goes on in uh, communist China in their uh, education system in terms of just the propaganda and the indoctrination instead of actually teaching um, s subjects and actually teaching uh, things like math and reading and, you know, basic um, skill sets. And so, uh, you know, what, what exactly does it mean to say that, okay, climate change is going to be taught through um, some of these subjects? Because when I think about physical education, art, foreign languages, things like that, I don't immediately think, oh, sure, that, that means climate change. I mean, how do they even put this indoctrination into those subjects? Well, uh, so take foreign language, for instance. They, they want to focus on this idea of global citizenry and climate change. And so how much is proficiency going to be minimized as opposed to learning about climate change? And, and it's things like that in math. Every word problem is going to have to be climate, not every word problem, but most word problems are going to have to be climate change related. And so that's the way they're injecting it into the classroom. And it's a manipulation of young minds. I mean, that's why at Campus Reform we're reporting on these things, because it's frightening to see this far left agenda being pushed down students' throats, where these students haven't yet developed the critical thinking skills that they need, they haven't developed the problem-solving skills that they need to be able to challenge and push back. Education is about intellectual inquiry and asking questions and, and debating all sides of an issue, looking at all sides of the issue. I have no problem with climate change being taught in science class, but when you're bringing it to the other subject areas, that shows what the real agenda is, and we're not possessing, we're not creating students that are well-informed. We're creating students that adhere to the climate doctrine. We need to create students where students are informed, engaged, and become responsible citizens, not ones that just bow down 
and blindly take what they hear and make it as a political agenda for the government to push upon the people. Yeah, really well said. And, and I agree with you that, you know, I don't mind um, some of these topics like uh, climate change being uh, taught, it, at least in terms of here's what the theory is, and to a at least a sophisticated enough student to be able to recognize here's what the, the doctrine or the mantras of climate change are suggesting, here's the, uh, the alternative argument, and now let's debate and discuss and you decide for yourself, rather than teaching it as fact. And when uh, when teachers are putting this and when states are forcing teachers uh, in curriculum to, to teach this um, from a fact-based perspective and when it's so blatant and it's, and it's taught as, um, as something as, as obvious as, you know, a, as a fact, then that's where I have a problem with it rather than um, the, the discussion and the debate that you would see more on a high school or college level. Is that and fair to say? To me. It is fair to say, and to me, my biggest fear is the fear that's actually being instilled on the student body. So New Jersey is requiring every school to hire climate justice coordinators. And when we look at the numbers, you have 52% of people between the ages of 13 to 17 that are angry about climate change. 57% are afraid of climate change. 42% feel guilty about their role in climate change. And 43% feel helplessness in regards to climate change. So you have a lot of people where they're instilling fear in the young students to manipulate their minds and turn them into climate justice warriors. Right. And, and I'm speaking with uh, Nicholas Giordano, who is a professor of political science and a fellow at the Campus Reforms Higher Education Fellowship. And you mentioned New Jersey and um, and this they have to, to hire um, someone. What, what was it? A climate justice who's a, coordinator. What does that even mean? Well, uh, like, this is like, why, why would a the, school need that? <laughs> Well, think about it this way. It's where the diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice mantra comes into play. So everything is being used under this umbrella, climate justice, racial justice, uh, class justice, equity justice. You, you see this word justice all over the place. And basically, these climate justice coordinators are going to go because, let's face it, a, a foreign language teacher is not trained in science. They're not trained in climate change. So we're going to have teachers that don't really understand the science actually teaching this to students. So the climate justice coordinators are supposed to help those teachers integrate climate change into those lesson plans. Well, how many of those teachers are actually going to say, push back and say, well, I don't understand this myself. How can I teach it to my students if I don't understand it? Right, right. And, and I'm seeing here um, that on the, according to the New Jersey Department of Education, all curricula must, quote, approach climate change and climate solutions from a climate justice perspective. As you said, and schools are encouraged to appoint climate justice coordinators to foster partnerships between the school's students and, quote, community-based advocacy organizations. So, th so this really is, uh, then, Professor, I mean, ju literally just the breeding ground, as you as you said earlier, to create more Greta Thunbergs to say, go and partner with these um, these other organizations and we want to um, manipulate your mind, indoctrinate you, and then give you the quote-unquote tools and the the language and the, the mantras and the propositions to then go out and partner with um, some of these advocacy organizations. Um, what are those organizations that, that they're asking students to partner with? 
they're the far-left organizations that, that promote the government involvement of restricting CO2 emissions, moving to, you know, electric-powered stoves, getting rid of coal and wood-fired pizza ovens. So we, we see what these organizations are all about, and now we're going to be partnering students. And, and that's the thing. You see it's about training them. It's not about educating them. It's about training them to think one way. And they'll be successful. If this continues to be implemented, they will be successful in that, given the age of the student body, because there's only going to be one answer. As you just read from the standards, they have to approach it from a climate justice perspective. So they're not going to be looking at any other perspectives except for the climate justice perspective. And again, that's not what education was was meant to be about. Education was looking at all perspectives, not just following narratives, not just sitting there and accepting what you're being told. It's always about questioning and pushing back, but this actually undoes that. Yeah, and and it's the exact opposite. They want you to they want students to just uh, believe the indoctrination, don't question anything, just be good little soldiers for the state. And uh, so well, you're you're manipulate um, young minds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's easy enough even to manipulate um, college students. I mean, you know, who are even you know over eighteen and and who are young adults. Uh, but even then, in on the college level, it's it's easy enough to indoctrinate them. And you know, I mean, I've read s- statistics. Um, from some of uh, you know the, the Christian organizations that talk about how many students um, lose their faith if they're not grounded in the biblical worldview and then go to college and are confronted with um, a lot of these other uh, you know sorts of philosophies and theologies and if it's if it's that um, easy and that frequent unfortunately um, to to manipulate the minds and to indoctrinate even students on a college level, how much more uh, K through 12? Well, I'll give you an example. I, I've been teaching for 17 years, and every, every semester I give my students a, a couple of quizzes to see what they know about America. And 90% of my students can't differentiate between the Russian Constitution and the American Constitution. So when you look at that, these students know very little about their own government, about their own country, about their own history. And when they don't know about their government or their history, it's very easy to try and change things, to try and push agendas. If we were really serious about education, well, why do students come into my classroom and they're not even able to pass a basic citizenship exam? By the time students get to my classroom, they should be able to almost recite the United States Constitution. But we're not teaching the Constitution in K through 12. We don't focus on it a lot. And, and so that's part of our problem, right? So now we're going to infuse this climate agenda into the K through 12 curriculum. We're already not teaching about American government. So how can you manipulate the American government system because of such an uninformed citizenry that we're creating? Yeah, really well said. And, you know, they're not even teaching the U.S. Constitution in law school, in constitutional law class. I mean, I I remember in law school, um, you know, we just start with what does the Supreme Court say about the Constitution? And let's learn the doctrines that we want future lawyers to go and and argue before the Supreme Court. And, 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 and we were told and had to uh, and to pass exams and all of that to think through. Uh, the the legal narrative just based on what the Supreme Court precedent was and not even going back and reading and studying what the Constitution itself had to say. And I mean, and that's a class that is literally supposed to teach that. And now yeah. you have a lot of law professors actually undermining the Constitution and actually yes. teaching that fundamental freedoms 
well, we don't deserve those fundamental freedoms, and government gets to dictate our freedoms. And just to give you a quick example, you have a professor at a Harvard Law and Arizona State University that said when it comes to the Internet, China had it right and America had it wrong when it comes to censorship within the Internet. So the law professors, you are 100 percent correct. They're part of our problem because they're the ones that are supposed to be teaching the importance of the Constitution, and yet they're undermining it. Yeah, and, and this is, it, it's such a travesty because then not only do you have um, your future lawyers, you have, you know, all of your your students that have come through uh, the the publicly or state-funded institutions that then go on to these professions like law and government, and then we wonder why our civil society is, uh, is then foreclosing parental rights on um, things like education and uh, not protecting and preserving our rights and religious liberty and freedom and all of that because we're not educating well the citizens who are who are going to then ultimately hold those positions in our civil society about America's founding and and so what can in, in the last few minutes I have with you and I so appreciate your uh, time here uh, Nicholas Giordano who is a professor of political science and at uh, the Leadership Institute's campus reform uh, higher education uh, fellow and um, you end your op-ed by saying you know it's time for parents teachers and concerned citizens to reclaim our education system from those who prioritize political indoctrination over genuine learning. How do we do that in the, in, an, in another generation so that we are not left in the same type of society that we currently find ourselves? Well, I'll say this. When it comes to the actual teachers themselves, they're on the front lines, and they're the first line of defense. And I encourage all the teachers out there to go to their unions, file grievances, and make it known that they're not trained in this subject material, therefore they should not be teaching it. It doesn't drive what the curriculums in foreign language or gym or, or other courses. And so they should put up a fight on the front lines. Parents should look at what their children are learning, look at the documents that they're taking home, look at their homework, read their textbooks to see how the climate agenda is being infused into all these different subject areas. And if they don't like what they see, they need to contact the school boards. They, they need to file their complaints. They need to complain to the state officials and, and their local legislatures. And th that's the way you start to begin to chip away at this. But the most important thing is that people that have a passion for education, they need to start becoming the teachers. They need to go into the education field because we can't continue to have a far-left ideology being pushed on the student body. There's no political ideology should be pushed on the student body. And I think that that, to me, is going to be the long-term solution. Get the ideologues out of education and replace it with people that have an appreciation and a love of what education is all about. Yeah, so well said. And I could not agree more that we need uh, more people who are... Uh, Christian conservatives and who understand what our nation was founded upon to engage in civil society and, and become uh, the teachers and the leaders in all of these different disciplines, whether it's education to corporate America to uh, anything else. We need to be the ones that are on the front lines and shaping this and not just retreating into our homes and our churches. Um, so Nicholas Giordano, really appreciate it. His op-ed is up at Fox News. America's schools are becoming training grounds for climate change activists. You can read that. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning.
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And uh, we are going to talk in this segment about the Enneagram theology. Uh, This is a book that I have been reading by Ren Cherry uh, that is called Enneagram Theology, Is It Christian? And uh, this is such an important topic for Christians to always consider. Are we borrowing tools from uh, the secular culture when they're actually in conflict with biblical truth and with the theology or the truth of the nature and the knowledge of God? And um, so when we're talking about things like, you know, math and science and um, and all of these other you know, other tools that we can learn about and that we do learn about and hopefully we're not um, infused with climate change and other kind of, you know, bogus theories, uh, we, we can't have to differentiate between fact of the laws of nature and of nature's God, as our founders put it, um, facts that are self-evident truth versus uh, bias and viewpoint that tools are shaped and designed based on a false false paradigm and false perspective. And so the forward to this book um, is, is from a... Uh, a, a man who is a theologian and um, also, I believe, a um, a pastor as well. And he says in the foreword, while many of the personality tests, such as Myers-Briggs or um, the MBTI or some of these things that are used in various uh, settings like counseling, hiring decisions, conflict management, uh, things like that, while many of those personality tests have been used and could even be considered popular with evangelicals, I had been hearing about another typology which seemed to be growing in popularity within evangelical circles. I did not know a great deal about the Enneagram at the time, but I had read several articles and continued to hear of its use in various Christian contexts. I was like so many other pastors and administrators who are busy and have probably not been able to give much attention to researching the theological details that create the foundations of the Enneagram. Our tendency toward pragmatism makes us more vulnerable to a tool like the Enneagram. Christian leaders are especially vulnerable when we are not aware of overt breaches to our doctrinal stances based on our surface understanding of a tool like the Enneagram. In fact, our default is often that we do not want to keep people away from something that they may find helpful without first considering some of the underlying philosophies that may be compromising the doctrines we hold dear. We have little time to sincerely vet every faddish tool that arises, so we will either endorse it by our silence or we will acknowledge a usefulness of the tool because of its popularity and seeming benefit. And I think that uh, introduction is so important to why it is incredibly, incredibly uh, required of Christians. I think it's a duty and it is a a biblical obligation of us to make sure that we are not um, held captive by any false doctrine or ideology just because of some of these tools or um, or popular uh, usefulness in culture. And I know the Enneagram, especially with um, the younger generation, and I know, you know, depending on what area of, or line of work um, you may be in, um, for those of you that are listening, 
the the Enneagram became a lot more popular um, uh, probably about a decade ago, but it's it's been um, surfacing even more than the Myers-Briggs personality test. I remember um, when I was in high school, I first uh, learned about the Myers-Briggs personality test um, from a friend who's a Christian and um, and was saying, you know, this is really fascinating because this four-letter combination, and so there are, um, you know, two different letters for each of the four-letter combinations. So there's like 12 different personality types um, that you can't, or 16, I guess. Um, yeah, see, I can't do math because I'm a lawyer, but that's fine. Um, so, so there's like 16 different combinations of personalities, and that is supposed to evidence how you think through things, what your tendencies are, uh, what your overall uh, personality type is. And um, and that can be useful in a sense of um, they claim, the, the authors of these types of tests, to discover um, how you think differently, how we understand each other, and then the combination of how do you interact your personality type with your line of work, um, and that can become useful, they say, to your employers to understand what type of an employee are you, what type of uh, line of work would you be most um, interested in and most competent at. And then, of course, in relationships, how do two personality types in a relationship, in a marriage, uh, interact with each other, and is it useful to understanding ourselves? So those are the perceived uh, benefits, among others. Um, some of the drawbacks, of course, um, just without even talking about the theology underneath is that a lot of these things can then be used as um, as excuses to say, well, this is how I am. Uh, love me for who I am. We've all heard that from, you know, all of the, the Instagram sort of mantras to say, well, this is who I am. Uh, deal with it, basically. And so, so people who tend to use these personality tests uh, to cover their own tendencies toward uh, toward sin or to uh, to be a certain way that is not in line with uh, conduct becoming of a Christian, they will use these personality types to say, well, um, you know, I'm I am an introvert, and and that means then that I don't want to address conflict, and so therefore, if you have a problem with the way that I'm acting, then you can't confront me because I I don't like confrontation, so therefore, deal with me how I am, and it's it can become a manipulative. Um, tool to then foist our sin upon others, and and I've seen that um, using my mom, who of course is a biblical counselor, and and I appreciate so many of you who listen to our show uh, when I had her on as my special guest when I was filling in for uh, airing the Addisons a couple of weeks ago, and um, we talked through some of the um, the ways that um, and and problems that she. Uh, she encounters during biblical counseling sessions, and so we've talked through, and I've I've, I've talked through um, with uh, pastor friends of mine and and other um, theologians as well about these types of personality tools and using that as an excuse to not grow in our faith and to say, well, this is my personality and. Uh, that's just who I am. And so therefore that's how God made me. I mean, that's the same kind of excuse. We're just leaning into this is how God made me instead of the leftists that say, well, I was born this way. Therefore don't tell me that I can't um, have my sexual orientation or my lifestyle however I want. It's the same underlying problem of selfishness and of saying, I want to lean into what I feel like I want to do instead of uh, being more and more like Christ. 
So when it comes to the Enneagram specifically, um, I actually read a book that was positive on the Enneagram. It was um, from a, uh, an, it was from a, another author, um, and I don't think it was it was Richard Rohr, but he is uh, the main. Uh, doctrine giver, I suppose, and the main theologian behind um, the Enneagram. And, uh, and and so this book that I read was from a couple of other psychologists that were talking about the usefulness of the Enneagram. And it's um, it has nine different personality types. And based on that, you are designated as a one through nine in personality. And if you are a one, this is um, your tendencies. These are uh, you you can have um, these different personality types and it goes through all the different nine personalities. Then there are subtypes like are you a one with a, you know, a five or, you know, all of these different numbers, right? So there are different models and ways that they say you can uh, evidence your personality based on this one through nine uh, sort of framework. And interestingly, when I was reading the introduction and the explanation of the Enneagram, um, I had only heard about it through popular culture uh, and from friends who were talking about the one through nine different personality types and the topography of what a typical personality type would be in these one through nine uh, schematic. And what I learned through reading this book is that actually what the Enneagram's philosophy wants is that as you are moving from a um, what they would term as a as a weak um, type. So let's just say you're a one and you're moving toward being a stronger or better or ultimately best version of a one. Then they're they're saying, so now if you have achieved in uh, through the Enneagram's philosophy, becoming the best archetype of that personality and doing the most positive good, how do they measure good? That's a whole other question then you should be moving toward the next point on the Enneagram. So what they try to do is actually take you through this. It almost looks like um, a pentagram a little bit, um, and that should give you a clue on on its uh, fundamental theology. But as you're moving through this whole um, pentagram of these nine different points, they actually say that you are your complete self when you have moved through all of the nine different personalities and have taken the best aspects of that archetype and embraced that into your own personality. And so really what it's trying to say is that we are supposed to all be within the same personality type. And it's a very pagan uh, type of theology. And so this book, um, The Enneagram Theology, and I would highly recommend it. It's it's a really fascinating book. Um, and anyone who is concerned with how a Christian should or should not use Enneagram in um, their daily lives and in uh, whether it's in a workplace or especially in the context of a church, but anywhere, you need to know what the philosophy of the Enneagram actually teaches. And so uh, this this book in the introduction says, Enneagram theology confirms based on the theological and anthropological doctrines taught by Richard Rohr, which are in conflict with Orthodox evangelical theology and anthropology, that the Enneagram should be abandoned and rejected as non-Christian. This book raises the question, can Rohr's pan- an- panentheism and multiple paths to God 
ever be accurately labeled as Christian when they deny so many of the core doctrines of the Bible. So Rohr is uh, basically suggesting that it's not pantheistic, meaning that God is everything material, but panentheism, which is that God is in everything. And this whole uh, multiple paths to God, which are the different points of the Enneagram and the different personalities are suggesting that we can achieve our, our archetype and ultimately all become one together if we all achieve uh, the complete, uh, not circle, but the complete travel or journey around the path of the Enneagram. Um, that is non-Christian. And so the Enneagram presents, um, according to the introduction, a dangerous shift in focus away from the holiness of the God of the Bible and toward the discovery of a mythical, good, quote unquote, true self that does not exist. The Enneagram also poses a danger of mischaracterizing man's problem as one of mistaken identity rather than total depravity. And the Enneagram solution of self-knowledge represents a false gospel. The Enneagram version of the restoration of man looks like reconnection with his original true good self, which is uh, what is defined by the Enneagram as uh, your, your good true self is when you have made and traveled all the way through this whole journey of the nine different personality archetypes. And that's our true self. I mean, this sounds a lot also like Scientology, um, but this is also trying to achieve different um, states of enlightenment, of understanding a deeper self. And so what this is ultimately doing um, is advocating and defending a panentheistic theology that consists of two foundational components. So the first core element of Rohr's panentheism is a dogma that the first incarnation occurred at creation. Rohr maintained that God indwelled all of creation at the actual event of creation, and therefore all of creation has a divine nature. So that's the panentheistic component. The second primary component of Rohr's panentheism is his interpretation of, quote unquote, in Christ. So Rohr has interpreted the biblical term in Christ to mean that all of creation, including humanity, is already divine in nature. This also sounds a lot like Hinduism, that we are all, God is in all of us, right? And, and that's actually what we heard uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a Hindu, uh, say when he was talking about Hinduism that, um, you know, we, we all have a God in us. Well, no, the Christian biblical worldview says that God created man in his image. We are image bearers, but in order to be indwelt by the spirit, we have to repent of our sin and our federal headship that was in Adam as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. We are in Adam. We are dead in sin. We have to repent and come under a different federal headship, which is Jesus Christ. And we have to accept the truth of Jesus as Lord, and then we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So uh, Rohr's belief and that man's problem reduces to a need to discover his hidden but good true self, which has always existed from creation, has now influenced and promoted the Enneagram as the perfect tool to help people discover their true selves. Well, the Enneagram is not the perfect tool. The Bible is the perfect tool to help us discover 
our true nature, which is fallen, and our need for a savior. So if you want to read this book and more about the Enneagram theology, it's by Ren, R-H-E-N-N, Cherry. And I would very much encourage every Christian to understand this, be educated, reject false doctrine, embrace the truth. You can always reach me and my team at Jenna at AFR.net. Thank you to everyone who has prayed for me and who has encouraged me over the last 24 hours. I love and appreciate you so much. Thanks. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.